Hey, Peacenicks. So this is Smoke in the Air, Elephant in the Room, Part 2. And you'll notice I titled it The Peace on Abortion instead of the super long all-in-one title. Smoke in the Air, Elephant in the Room, Part 2, The Peace on Abortion. It was too much, and I wanted people to be able to find this episode if they wanted to share it because it's a very important episode. We are covering the last from the elephant list from the Part 1, and the last on the list was... Democrats are pro-choice and Republicans are pro-life. And because of the reversal of Roe versus Wade, we've decided to do this topic. And I handed it over to my wife and let her take lead on this one because it was important to me that this come from a woman and I did not just be another man explaining women's rights to people. Uh, this is an issue that is very important to me and especially important to my wife and to women all across the country. So I'm going to hand it over to my wife. Again, this is Elephant in the Room Part 2, a Smoke in the Air special, The Peace on Abortion. At the Supreme Court today, an historic upheaval. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedence, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. There is a big variety of opinions on the ground right now. This is the piece on abortion. Hey, Peace Nicks. Megan Rose here. Thank you, Aaron, for letting me take this one. This is an issue that is important for so many reasons, and I'm absolutely devastated with what's happening in my country. So the Republicans have just got what they wanted with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, handing the legality of abortion back to the states. And I've seen a lot of conservatives on Facebook sticking to this talking point that it's not about outlawing abortion, it's about letting states decide. Now, if they were asked if we should abolish the Second Amendment and allow states to decide if they could bear arms, well, they'd be singing a different tune. And this really makes me feel that we are closer to a civil war than we have been since, well, the Civil War. The same argument was made then that it wasn't about slavery. It was about the state's right to decide whether or not they could own slaves. And if it had been left up to the states, slavery would not have been abolished in 1865. Another point, before I get into the issue itself, is that Roe v. Wade was overturned by a conservative Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a champion for women's rights, died when Trump was in office and was replaced by the right-wing conservative Christian woman, Amy Coney Barrett. Of the nine justices who voted when R.V. Wade was overturned, three were appointed by Trump and two by George W. Bush. Two presidents who lost a popular vote appointed over half of the Supreme Court justices and they used their power to strip women of the right to choose, an extremely fundamental right that many women's lives will be destroyed without. Suicide rates will rise as young women who are terrified of the prospect of having a child growing inside them for whatever reason they have, whether she was raped or duped by a smooth-talking boy who has already moved on to his next girl, or she is simply not ready to have a child because she is focused on her career. The reason a woman chooses to terminate a pregnancy is no one's business but hers. As I get into the ethical discussion on the issue, let me start by explaining the arguments and mentality of pro-life people. We have all seen the pro-life people protesting with signs, with huge images of fetuses and Bible quotes, the most famous on the issue being Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Of course, they usually leave out the second part of the verse. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
because then the verse doesn't sound as strong because it doesn't necessarily apply to all people, but just this one prophet. But either way, we have seen these people. Maybe you have some in your family. Maybe you yourself are one of them. My husband, Aaron, hosted the show, was one of them himself when he was a kid. I'll let him explain why. Yeah, so um, uh, my family is very religious, and I've talked about it on this podcast many times. Uh, my sisters and I grew up with a note on the fridge explaining to whoever was left behind after the rapture and they came looking for us, that if we had vanished, it was because we were raptured and that they still had time to repent and be saved. I remember the first time I protested abortion, I was probably 11. I was at church and handed an anti-abortion sign. And I remember asking what abortion was. I didn't even know what it was. I'd never heard of it. And it was explained to me that it was the term for murdering babies. And when I asked why anyone would ever murder a baby, I was told because the mother didn't want them. And so she murdered her baby and that it was legal for a mother to murder her baby before a certain age. And that is what we were protesting. So with this clearly distorted definition of what abortion was at 11 years old, I stood on the side of the road with the other church people and held my sign. People would flip us off when they drove by and it made me furious. How are these people giving us the finger when we are trying to stop babies from being murdered? Did this actually mean they were okay with babies being murdered? That they actually supported it? Now, once I heard what abortion actually was, even at a young age, probably 15 or 16, I immediately changed my mind. And also, there was only one other time I remember protesting. It wasn't like a big part of my childhood or anything. But my point for bringing this up is that it's that angry feeling that I had towards pro-choice people for being pro-baby murder with a limited and distorted understanding of what abortion was. That's the same anger that pro-life adults feel, and really for the same exact reasons, only they have a complete understanding of what, what it is. But... They just still believe it's baby murder. And because the, the fetus, if the fetus is not aborted, this is their point, if the fetus is not aborted and remains healthy, it will become a human baby. So when pro-life people get angry and yell and hold up disgusting signs and shame women, yes, it is awful behavior in my opinion. But if you can at least understand that it is their belief that babies are being murdered, and if you actually thought this, I'm sure that it would make you upset and want to protest as well. They, they also have a religious conviction of why they believe this way. Um, so I'm, I'm going to let Meg finish explaining. Meg, can you start by explaining the baby murder philosophy and why people believe it is that, or why we believe that it's at least flawed? And then explain the religious aspect. And last, can you explain why women having the right to choose is so important and what the world without legal abortion will actually look like? Okay, so starting with baby murder, you hear a lot of propaganda and see it on Facebook and bumper stickers. A picture of a fetus with the caption, I have a heartbeat at three weeks old. Never mind that the heart isn't yet formed. It does have a pulse, but it's hard to call it a heartbeat without a heart, but eventually become a heartbeat and pro-life people love preemptively naming things. Pulse without a heart is a heartbeat. Fetus without the ability to continue to grow separate from its mother's womb is already being called an individual with rights. I saw a sticker the other day that said pro-life, that radical idea that it's wrong to kill humans. That's just ridiculous. It's not yet a human. It will be if the mother chooses to let it grow inside her, but won't be if she is not ready to have the child. And most pro-life people are Republican and support the death penalty. I was talking with a pro-lifer, and she said that the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and it's as simple as that. I said, do you support the death penalty? And she said, well, yeah, because the Bible says an eye for an eye. 
I said, but that means it's not as simple as that, right? Anyway, a more important point is that we are not living in a theocracy, so why a religious book is being argued about in the first place is really the question. We'll get into that next, but first I want to finish my point about baby murder versus pregnancy termination. The question is, is it ethical to allow a woman to choose to terminate a pregnancy, or does the fetus have a right to grow and be born in this world? The pro-choice people say it is just cells, and the pro-life people say it has a heartbeat and can feel pain. Saying it has a heartbeat is simply a way to pull at people's heartstrings. Heartstrings being a metaphor for getting an emotional response from people which occurs in the brain, not the heart. What is the significance of whether or not it has that particular organ? A new study by researchers in the UK shows that the heart isn't actually fully developed until 20 weeks, but the reason the heart is significant is because we have always referred to our heart as our source of emotion and love, and though we now know that the heart is just a blood pump and the brain is where we experience love and emotions. Also, if a heartbeat is where you draw the line, you better be vegan. The animals we eat have heartbeats, they have emotions, love for their offspring, a desire to run and play and live free lives. So the fact that the heart is formed by 20 weeks, or as early as 10 according to previous studies, means no more in the debate than saying a fetus has a bladder by week 12 or a spleen by week 18. So when does the brain fully develop? This would make for a better argument. And the answer is 25 years. That's right, 25 years. Now this is actually fascinating. The reason why is explained by evolution, which is a problem because a lot of pro-life people don't believe in evolution. Actually, half of adult Americans believe the Earth is only 10,000 years old, which is 100% not true, and has been completely disproven by all peer-reviewed science, as has the idea that the human race could have only started with two people, Adam and Eve. Completely disproven. Anyway, back to the religious discussion in a minute. So the reason the human brain isn't fully developed until 25 years Aaron's going to read from Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. All right. Walking upright has its downside. The skeleton of our primate ancestors developed for millions of years to support a creature that walked on all fours and had a relatively small head. Adjusting to an upright position was quite a challenge, especially when the scaffolding had to support an extra large cranium. Humankind paid for its lofty vision and industrious hands with backaches and stiff necks. Women paid extra. An upright gait required narrower hips, constricting the birth canal. And this just when babies' heads were getting bigger and bigger. Death and childbirth became a major hazard for human females. Women who gave birth earlier, when the infant's brain and head were still relatively small and supple, fared better and lived to have more children. Natural selection consequently favored earlier births. And indeed, compared to other animals, humans are born prematurely, when many of their vital systems are still underdeveloped. A colt can trot shortly after birth. A kitten leaves its mother to forage on its own when it is just a few weeks old. Human babies are helpless, dependent for many years on their elders for sustenance, protection, and education. This fact has contributed greatly both to humankind's extraordinary social abilities and to its unique social problems. Lone mothers could hardly forage enough food for their offspring and themselves with needy children in tow. Raising children required constant help from other family members and neighbors. It takes a tribe to raise a human. Evolution thus favored those capable of forming strong social ties. In addition, since humans are born underdeveloped, they can be educated and socialized to a far greater extent than any other animal. Most mammals emerge from the womb like glazed earthenware emerging from a kiln. 
Any attempt at remolding will only scratch or break them. Humans emerge from the womb like molten glass from a furnace. They can be spun, stretched, and shaped with a surprising degree of freedom. This is why today we can educate our children to become Christian or Buddhist, capitalist or socialist, warlike or peace-loving. So with the human brain not fully developed until 25 years, I guess this is another reason why pro-life people are using the heartbeat and not the brain, that the brain is so much more important. So if it takes 25 years to fully develop, how developed is it at five years? How about one year? How about while it's a fetus? The answer is the human brain and nervous system are in their infancy, pun intended, and not close to where they will be once the child is walking and talking and making memories. And I would argue that this is where human consciousness and soul begin when the child is learning and making memories and becoming a part of the human family. And I would argue that as soon as a human is no longer inside of its mother, it then becomes quite literally an individual, and this would be a great place to say that it is a child with rights and should be protected. But as long as it is growing inside another human, that it is of no concern to anyone other than the woman who is growing inside. And this is most definitely a debate, and some of you will disagree with me, but that's why we are pro-choice and not pro-abortion. Imagine a world where we decided that humans are a virus and are destroying the earth and causing mass extinctions and destroying the ozone, and we passed legislation that only allowed for people to have a child if they applied for a license and were approved by the state, and that any pregnant woman who was not approved had to have a mandatory abortion. This would be an example of the pro-abortion world. The opposite is a pro-life world where no matter whether you want a baby or not, if you are pregnant, you have to have the baby. So the compromise would be a pro-choice world, which is a world we lived in until just about a month ago. A world where if you're pro-life and you believe terminating a pregnancy is murdering a baby, then you don't have to have an abortion. But if you believe it is not a human life until birth and you are not ready to have a child, you can terminate the pregnancy. This was a world of compromise, but now pro-life ideals are being forced on people who do not share them. And this brings us to religion. The problem with Christianity and the reason it has become the largest religion in the world is because, unlike other big religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, it claims to be the only truth and that anyone who does not follow it will burn in hell. And people actually believe this to be 100% literally true. So when I say that we don't live in a theocracy and that we have a separation of church and state so people's religious convictions are of no concern to the laws of the land, well, this is in contradiction to their beliefs because to them, God's law is more important than a constitution. And when, say, a gay man wanted to get married before he was granted that right by the Supreme Court, another right that they may be trying to take back, what did religious people do? They quoted the Bible. The Bible says a man should not lay with another man. And when this argument was countered with, well, I don't believe in the Bible, well, that didn't give you a pass the way it should have. Oh, you don't believe in rules written in a book of Jewish mythology that's thousands of years old? I do, so I'm going to live by them. But you don't, so you don't have to. No, they believe that the book is universal truth from the one true source of creation. The omnipotent creator of this universe has said in his infinite wisdom that he does not like when men lie together because they believe that this is the ultimate without a doubt truth and that those who do not follow it will burn in hell. They do not care that you are not Christian and that we have separation of church and state and do not live in a theocracy. They will do whatever they can to put laws in place that force you, whether you're a Christian or not, to live by Christian rules or pay the price. They do not have the mental capacity to respect other people's faiths and other cultures' traditions if they do not fit inside Christian moralities, and they will fight to the death as they have done throughout history, those who will not comply with their dogmatic tyranny. And the Christians and conservatives have been playing the slow game ever since Roe v. Wade, and they have finally succeeded in ripping away a woman's right to choose. 
Now I'd like to talk about what the Bible says about abortion. Something I wish was irrelevant, but as I've already explained, separation of church and state and the fact that we don't live in a theocracy are both only correct in theory. When over half the nation are members of the ancient Jewish cult, Christianity, and they vote and hold office and make up over half the Supreme Court, it is unfortunately important that we actually discuss their book, the Bible, a book that we still place our hand on in court. So what does the Bible say about abortion? The answer? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But this fact does not stop people all over the country from using the Bible and quoting it to praise the court's decision, proclaiming as Trump did that the ruling was God's will. Senator Doug Mastriano tweeted, Celebrating life, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That was Psalm 139, verse 1314. That being said, Aaron's going to read from an article by academic Katie Edwards. As Megan said, this is an article by academic Katie Edwards. As an academic specializing in the Bible in contemporary culture, I was puzzled and troubled to see the biblical text employed to support anti-abortion laws and rhetoric. Because here's the main problem. The Bible has precious little to say about abortion. Take Mastriano's tweet. Beyond the idea that fetuses are God's creation, it's difficult to see the relevance of this biblical passage for the current ruling effects, reproductive rights, and bodily autonomy. After all, according to Mastriano's logic, babies and adults are God's creation too. But that doesn't preclude divinely sanctioned genocide and infanticide in the biblical text. Mastriano is also a former military, so his pro-life theology must be pretty flexible. In the aftermath of this ruling, there has been a temptation to see Christianity as a monolith, as if every Christian believes the same thing. Of course, that's not true. Like all religions, Christian belief is complex and there are many pro-choice Christians who are appalled by the ruling. Conflating all Christianities into a homogenous group is as reductive as the Republican pro-lifers who have celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade by quoting the Bible. The Bible is a uniquely influential but not notoriously malleable cultural document. There's a suitable passage for every perspective. So those pro-lifers trotting out the commandment, thou shalt not murder, are on a hiding to nothing. The Bible also says thou shalt not kill, but makes an exception for the death penalty, though the exception isn't written into the Ten Commandments. Also, as Katie Edwards pointed out, God didn't have a problem committing genocide. Remember when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? He saved one family, Lot's family, for Lot was the only decent man. But he warned them not to look back at the city when they fled, and his wife did, so God turned her into a pillar of salt. I mean, these stories are just so ridiculous, and I hate that we even have to discuss this book in a serious way, but people believe in this stuff. So I would really like to move on. But one last point about the Bible. It says nothing about abortion, but there are many verses that are being used to suggest God would oppose abortion. But if this is an issue that God cares so much about to the point where for many Christians in my family, it is the most important issue above all other issues, maybe God would have said something less vague and actually just come out and say, thou shall not have an abortion. You know what? I'd like to add something here. Um, since this whole abortion debate is all about people's Christian values, though, as Meg just said, God seemed to forget to mention how much he was against it in the Bible. Christianity is entirely based on the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. All the culture and tradition, the Christmas and Easter Bunny and 
pro-life God bumper stickers and temples and robes and weird hats. That's all just trash floating around the tornado. At the center of the wind tunnel is the source of it all, and it is that book, the Bible. And because of this, I'd like to remind everyone how the book begins. Because the first chapter of the Old Testament, Genesis, which is Hebrew for in the beginning, this is literally the foundation of the entire Christian belief system. So it begins with God creating the universe. He creates man and names him Adam, and then makes Adam companions in the form of all the earth's animals. But when none of, of these animals suffice, he removes one of Adam's ribs and creates a woman from his rib. They live in the Garden of Eden and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. One day, Cain kills Abel and God shows up to punish Cain for what he did. He banishes Cain from the Garden of Eden and he places a permanent mark on Cain's forehead so that all the people of the world will know what he did. And he says, but God, if the people know what I have done, they will surely kill me. God says that they will not because he will declare if anyone kills Cain, he will be punished seven times over. Now I'm going to stop with the story right here. Who are all these people? They just show up. Was this just a lazy way of not having to explain that if God created only two people, then siblings and cousins would all have to have sex with each other? This stupid, ridiculous, nonsensical story is the literal foundation for the world's biggest religion. And the vague moralities in that book dictate laws and punishments all over the world and is now being used to strip women of their right to choose in America, land of the free. All right, back to you, Meg. All right, so that just about does it for the religious part. So I'm going to finish with explaining why a woman's right to choose is so important and what a world without legal abortion looks like. There are young women and even girls who are sexually abused repeatedly, and it is usually by a family member or someone close to the family. This becomes a routine thing in her life to the point where she doesn't fight it. I like what the Texas governor said when asked about rape, that next on his agenda was to arrest all the rapists and end rape. Few things here. One... Was that not already on the agenda? And if that was anywhere in the realm of something close to possible, why has no one thought of that before? It's not possible, and many of these assaults continue throughout a girl's childhood and end without the person ever getting caught, as many of these women are too ashamed to say anything. They hold that sadness and pain and anger inside of them. But in no world, if she were to become pregnant by her assailant, should she be asked to hold his baby inside of her as well. And if we passed a law that only allowed for rape victims, many of these young women would not have the abortion because it would mean having to open up to a stranger about her being raped. Something that she is so ashamed of, she would have this baby to avoid talking about it. And aside from the most horrifying ways a woman can become pregnant, there is also an argument for why a woman who chose to have sex and got pregnant should have the right to an abortion. For many young girls, they haven't learned about the conniving boys, the ones that they fall in love with and are told how beautiful they are and how in love with them they are. And then after dating for a while, he finally convinces her to have sex. And even though she doesn't want to, she worries that he will leave her for a girl who will have sex if she doesn't. And so she does and makes him wear a condom. It breaks. She finds out she's pregnant, and the boy has already moved on to another girl. Why should she now have to go through a nine-month pregnancy with that little sociopath's offspring? Give birth, go through all these hormonal changes, and then either begin raising the child that resembles the asshole kid that got her pregnant and put her dreams of going to college on hold or give it up for adoption and go through the pain of wondering where her child might be. She would develop a natural emotional bond to her child and giving it up might be traumatic. 
Why not let her terminate the pregnancy and wait to start a family when she's ready? We could go over scenario after scenario and explain how different things play out in women's lives and why they feel the need to end a pregnancy, but the real argument here is that her reason is no one's business but her own. And pro-life people who believe it's baby murder will never allow for exceptions because how could they? If it's baby murder for a girl who got pregnant on a one-night stand, then it would also be baby murder if she was raped. But the reality is, that is not baby murder. They say, well, what happens if you don't have the abortion? It will grow into a baby, right? Yeah, but that doesn't make it a baby before it is a baby. What happens if you use a condom and your sperm doesn't reach the egg? Is using a condom baby murder because had you not, you might have had a baby in nine months? Yes, I understand that the potential for life is much more real when sperm meets egg, and that is when you want to begin rights for a child. But a fetus is not yet a human child. It is the beginning of what could potentially become a child. But if it is aborted, it was never anything more than cells being shaped by genetic codes. If you meet an unborn fetus in heaven, what would its personality be? It absolutely would not have one. It has no stories, memories, impulses, drives. All of these things begin taking shape after the child is born, and this is where life begins and should be protected by laws in our society. But as long as it is growing inside of another person, it is no one's concern other than the person who it is growing inside. I hear things like, what if Jesus had been aborted? Well, what if Hitler had been aborted? What is your point? What if I had been aborted? Well, I would have never been, and you wouldn't be here asking me that stupid question. And if there were that all-knowing God, don't you think he wouldn't place souls into fetuses knowing that they were going to be aborted? And why is kid cancer a thing? All-powerful God that hates abortion but does nothing to stop child deformities, spinal bifida, child leukemia. Oh, and here's a fun fact for pro-life people. Did you know there's an estimated 160 million child slaves in the world? Where's your march to end that? Nope. Fetuses are the only thing you weirdly care about. Once the child is born, fuck them. I think it's a control thing. You just love telling women what to do with their bodies. You hate premarital sex, and the women who have abortions are engaging in it. This is a deliberate forcing of your antiquated moralities on people who do not share them. So what does this world that you are working towards look like? A world where a pregnant woman who does not want to have a child has no legal access to an abortion and can face criminal charges if she travels to get one or has one on the black market. That's right, the black market. There will be illegal abortions happening. You cannot stop all abortions through legislation, but you can make them much less safe. The term coat hanger abortion is a real thing and will be happening immediately when abortion is banned. Some of these women will kill themselves or be murdered by the man who got her pregnant. Some men will punch the women in their stomachs or throw them down the stairs to force a miscarriage. Some women will ask for this. Also, some women will go through with their pregnancies despite not wanting to. This is the best case, right? This is what you have fought for. So how does this play out? Aaron's going to read something from Freakonomics. All right, this is from the introduction and Freakonomics. Anyone living in the United States in the early 1990s and paying even a whisper of attention to the nightly news or daily paper could be forgiven for having been scared out of his skin. The culprit was crime. It had been rising relentlessly. A graph plotting the crime rate in any American city over recent decades looked like a ski slope in profile. And it seemed now to herald the end of the world as we knew it. Death by gunfire, intentional or otherwise, had become commonplace. So too had carjacking and crack dealing, robbery and rape. Violent crime was a gruesome, constant companion. And things were about to get even worse, much worse. All the experts were saying so. 
The cause was the so-called super predator. For a time, he was everywhere, glowering from the cover of news weeklies, swaggering his way through foot-thick government reports. He was a scrawny, big-city teenager with a cheap gun in his hand and nothing in his heart but ruthlessness. There were thousands out there just like him, we were told. A generation of killers about to hurl the country into deepest chaos. In 1995, the criminologist James Allen Fox wrote a report for the U.S. Attorney General that grimly detailed the coming spike in murders by teenagers. Fox proposed optimistic and pessimistic scenarios. In the optimistic scenario, he believed the rate of teen homicides would rise another 15% over the next decade. In the pessimistic scenario, it would be more than double. The next crime wave will get so bad, he said, that it will make 1995 look like the good old days. Other criminologists, political scientists, and similarly learned forecasters laid out the same horrible future, as did President Clinton. We know we've got about six years to turn this juvenile crime thing around, Clinton said, or our country is going to be living with chaos. And my successors will not be giving speeches about the wonderful opportunities of the global economy. They'll be trying to keep body and soul together for people on the streets of these cities. The smart money was plainly on the criminals. And then, instead of going up and up and up, crime began to fall and fall and fall and fall some more. The crime drop was startling in several respects. It was ubiquitous with every category of crime falling in every part of the country. It was persistent with incremental decreases year after year. And it was entirely unanticipated, especially by the very experts who had been predicting the opposite. The magnitude of the reversal was astounding the teenage murder rate, instead of rising 100% or even 15%, as James Allen Fox had warned, fell more than 50% within five years. By 2000, the overall murder rate in the United States had dropped to its lowest level in 35 years. So had the rate of just about every other sort of crime, from assault to car theft. Even though the experts had failed to anticipate the crime drop, which was in fact well underway even as they made their horrifying predictions, they now hurried to explain it. Most of their theories sounded perfectly logical. It was the roaring 1990s economy, they said, that helped turn back crime. It was the proliferation of gun control laws, they said. It was the sort of innovative policing strategies put into place in New York City where murders would fall from 2,245 in 1990 to 596 in 2003. These theories were not only logical, they were also encouraging, for they attributed the crime drop to specific and recent human initiatives. If it was gun control and clever policing strategies and better paying jobs that quelled crime, well then, the power to stop criminals had been within our reach all along, as it would be the next time, God forbid, that crime got so bad. These stories made their way seemingly without question from the experts' mouths to journalists' ears to the public's mind. In short course, they believed conventional wisdom. There was only one problem. They weren't true. There was another factor, meanwhile, that had greatly contributed to the massive crime drop of the 1990s. It had taken shape more than 20 years earlier and concerned a young woman in Dallas named Norma McCorvey. 
like the proverbial butterfly that flaps its wings on one continent and eventually causes a hurricane on another. Norma McCorvey dramatically altered the course of events without intending to. All she had wanted was an abortion. She was a poor, uneducated, unskilled, alcoholic, drug-using 21-year-old woman who had already given up two children for adoption and now, in 1970, found herself pregnant again. But in Texas, as in all but a few states at that time, abortion was illegal. McCorvey's cause came to be adopted by people far more powerful than she. They made her the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit seeking to legalize abortion. The defendant was Henry Wade, the Dallas County District Attorney. The case ultimately made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, by which time McCorvey's name had been disguised as Jane Roe. On January 22, 1973, the court ruled in favor of Miss Roe, allowing legalized abortion throughout the country. By this time, of course, it was far too late for Miss McCorvey, Roe, to have her abortion. She had given birth and put the child up for adoption. Years later, she would renounce her allegation to legalize abortion and become a pro-life activist. So how did Roe v. Wade help trigger a generation later the greatest crime drop in recorded history? As far as crime is concerned, it turns out that not all children are born equal, not even close. Decades of studies have shown that a child born into an adverse family environment is more likely than other children to become a criminal. And the millions of women most likely to have an abortion in the wake of Roe v. Wade, poor, unmarried, and teenage mothers for whom illegal abortions had been too expensive or too hard to get, were often models of adversity. They were the very women whose children, if born, would have been much more likely than average to become criminals. But because of Roe v. Wade, these children weren't being born. This powerful cause would have a drastic distant effect years later, just as these unborn children would have entered their criminal primes, the rate of crime began to plummet. It wasn't gun control or a strong economy or new police strategies that finally blunted the American crime wave. It was, among other factors, the reality that the pool of potential criminals had dramatically shrunk. Now, as the crime drop experts, the former crime doomsayers, spun their theories to the media, how many times did they cite legalized abortion as a cause? Zero. So Aaron's reason for reading that is not to say we need these women to have abortions to prevent crime. I think we need far better mental health available for people. We need to have social programs to make life for single mothers easier. We need better funded K-12 and better after-school programs for children. We need to completely rethink the criminal justice system and move from a punitive system that creates more criminals than it detours to a compassionate system of rehabilitation. But we have proven that these things are not a priority. Pro-life people want to stop women from having abortions and are mostly only stopping poor women who can't afford to travel or can't afford an illegal abortion. And once these women have these children that they did not want, they are abandoned by having no access to daycare, no paid time off, and no affordable housing if they have criminal records of any kind. What happens to the pro-life people once the children are born? They're done. They won. Stopping your abortion was the only thing on their agenda. Helping you manage to afford your child, navigate the tough waters of being a young mother with no money is not their problem. And this is a tragedy. With all those numbers, all the crime that dropped that will rise again, this is not a wave of criminals. It is a wave of the unwanted, the abandoned, the brokenhearted. 
I once heard a pro-lifer say that fetus feels pain and will feel the abortion. Maybe it will, for a split second, with no way to understand what the feeling even is other than unpleasant before it no longer feels anything. But if it is born into the world as an unwanted infant and grows up as an unwanted child, how much pain will the child then feel? All those numbers, the data on crime, that is pain, that is suffering, and it is suffering that can be avoided. It would be sad to say that someone who exists today who is one of these criminals should not exist. But it would not be sad had they never been. And I know for our emotional human brains, this is a hard fact to understand, but it is the truth. The best thing abortion laws will do for pro-life people is prevent poor mothers from being allowed to have abortions and will create a wave of unwanted children who will suffer and who will not be offered any help from the conservatives once they are born. The biggest point on this one is that it is the choice of the woman. If she is pro-life, she can choose to have the child. If she is pro-choice and is not ready for a pregnancy, then she can choose to terminate it, and it is no one else's concern. I know this is divisive, and some of you disagree with me extremely, though I'm guessing most of these people stopped listening and I'm probably preaching to the choir at this point. But I think the most important point is that pro-choice is not the same thing as pro-abortion. Pro-choice is the most reasonable solution. If you want to have the baby, you can choose to, and if you don't, you should have the right to choose not to. That's it for me on abortion. I'm going to hand it back to Aaron. Thank you, Megan. That was well said. I mean, I feel like it's the same argument I've made for drug legalization. Not to say that the issues are the same, but to quote Bill Hicks, it's not a want of drugs. It's a want of personal freedom. That is the definition of liberty, which is the most fundamental quality of freedom, to be able to do whatever we choose to do so long as it isn't stopping someone else from doing what they want to do. A pro-lifer might use the argument that abortion violates the liberty of the fetus. But as Megan explained, this is only true if you say a fetus is an individual with constitutional rights. And by definition, a fetus is in no way an individual as it requires another person for it to come into existence. And I agree with Megan. A child comes into existence as an individual with rights when it is born, when it no longer lives inside of another person, getting all its nutrients from what its mother eats, fluids from what she drinks, and oxygen from the air she breathes. That, that is her own DNA replicating inside her, mixed with the father's, and if she chooses not to want her DNA replicating with the father's and growing inside her, she should have the right to stop it. Back to the drug analogy. Terence McKenna said, if life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness doesn't include the right for me to experiment with my own consciousness, the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp it was written on. I would also say the right to your own body. And another huge commonality in the topic of drugs and abortion is abstinence. If people didn't use drugs, they wouldn't get addicted. And if people didn't have sex, they'd never need an abortion. Which of course is true. And if abstinence works for you, that's great. But it just doesn't work for everyone. And abstaining from sex, which is a most basic natural urge, works for almost nobody. And very few people, if anyone, get addicted to drugs because someone forced them on them. But women throughout history have had men force sex on them. Rape happens, and in no world should a woman who is raped be forced to allow a fetus with her and the rapist's DNA combined to grow inside of her. And as Meg said, she should never have to explain this to someone if she doesn't want to. 
Whatever a woman's reason for wanting an abortion is her business. Okay, peace nicks. So thanks for listening. This has been a special edition, Smoke in the Air, Elephant in the Room Part 2, the piece on abortion. I know we covered a lot of divisive topics over these past two specials, but I hope I shed some light to some of these topics, some of these issues, some of these things, let you know where I stand and why I stand, where I do. Again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Again, thanks to my wonderful wife, Megan, for helping me take the lead on this one. And peace out. Out.